Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 105 for March the 27th, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here with my reliable podcasting friend, Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Thanks, Chester. I have to compliment you on, on keeping the chat chat on track. We've been very consistent about getting these done just about exactly every two weeks for uh, most of 2013. Long may it continue, Chester. Much of that is due to your uh, hard work and preparation, and I genuinely appreciate it. Actually, a lot of this stuff turns out to be stories that you worked on as well, including this first one for the news this week. HP seems to have forgotten some debug code in uh, some of the firmware of their print devices. Well, at first I thought I'd misread this story when I was first reading it, because many HP printers by default still do listen on Telnet for configuration. But this is even worse than that. This is uh, an actual debug version of their firmware. Yes, I don't know why they would want Telnet. I mean, it was a little bit like buy our brand new VCR. It was a sort of flashback to the 1980s. I really don't know why you would have debug code that used Telnet when you could just use SSH anyway. But they managed to ship, I think there were 10 different devices that had this Telnet debug shell in them. So you could basically connect to the printer, get a shell, and actually retrieve some data which was supposed to be private. So a little bit of a little bit of egg on HP's face. This is not a mistake that you should be making today, folks. It's really important that when you ship code that it is the code that you intended to ship. Chester, I think it also raises this question about whether you should have a debug version that is so significantly different in the way it handles security to the one you're going to ship anyway. Yeah, it is it, it is all a bit odd, although, you know, to your point on Telnet, there's a couple disturbing things about Telnet. I mean, uh, it was only recently that uh, Solaris stopped shipping Telnet being on by default. <laughs> Chester, that was like mentioning, it was like you mentioned the word gramophone when you said Solaris. And the other thing is, uh, you know, H.D. Moore recently um, presented his research on scanning the entire IPv4 address space. In fact, uh, I was at B-Sides in Austin, Texas last week, and H.D. was there talking about his research. And the most interesting thing of all of it to me was that Telnet and FTP are still both more common than SSH on the Internet for listening ports out there. And that tells me that we've got a lot of work to do. I mean, it's shocking to think that um, both... On a, you know, both unencrypted protocols that transport passwords are more popular than SSH, which has been around for, well, back to the gramophone. Yes, I suppose you could make an exception for FTP in that you might have a server that is like a website designed for anyone to access without putting in a password. But if you, if you associate Telnet with remote shell, then you presume that there's going to be some sort of login, that you're going to be sending some sort of username and password. Why on earth would it be in the clear? Yeah, the FTP one, actually, it turns out, I think it was 8% were allowing anonymous authentication. So actually, 92% intended it to be private, which is still crazy. You know, speaking of crazy, there's an interesting crazy little debate. And usually uh, when we do polls on naked security, uh, I have a tendency to, to side with the majority because it's usually things like, should you be in control of your privacy on Facebook and these types of stories. You're not suggesting that we ask the questions in loaded or uh, leading ways, are you, Chester? No, but I mean, in this case, you're asking a question about uh, ad blocking on the Android platform. And apparently Google's uh, suddenly decided to enforce a policy that they've had for a while that says that uh, one app cannot interfere with another app. And I'm on the upside down on this one. I'm on the side that says, you know, Google has the right to do that and good on them. 
if you want free apps, then you've got to see the ads. And if you don't want that, then perhaps you should purchase an app that doesn't have ads. And many of the apps I use on my, my Android devices um, are that, that way, you know, from the beginning. I have a weather app and it's like, oh, you know, it's got advertisements and for 99 cents I can purchase the weather app and the advertisements go away. And everything's not a free ride in the world. And if you don't want ads, don't load things that are ad-sponsored. Yes, I get the argument. It just seemed that, it seemed a little ironic to me that Google, who have made a point, which is a perfectly valid one, that shopping in the alternative markets is more dangerous than shopping in the Play Store, have now forced the guys who provide opt-in ad-blocking software, stuff that conditions the content of what you're going to see, forced you to go to those alternative markets for those apps. And, you know, maybe Google could be a little more conciliatory and say, OK, the ads are there, if you want to block them, you're going to have to go out of your way to get some software that helps you to do it. And by the way, yes, we're going to let you get it from the from our more reputable store rather than make you go shopping elsewhere. So I just wrote about that because I felt it did seem ironic that Google want you to go for ad blocking software to the parts of the market that they actually encourage you not to go to. It just seems a little mean spirited, shall we say. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I just, uh, I, I'm not outraged. I go, well, you know, Google's an advertising company. That's where their revenue comes from. Um, many of the app developers for free apps do depend on that couple hundred dollar check coming in here and there from uh, the ad sponsorship in their apps, or, or certainly at least it buys them a nice dinner and a bottle of wine. And, uh, you know, I don't see the problem with that. I, I mean, I, it seems to, I guess, I'm, I'm maybe I'm transposing my frustration with uh, internet users that seem to have a sense of entitlement, that everything must be free and I must be able to retain my privacy and yada, yada, yada. The world doesn't operate that way. You either have to pay for a service or if you want it to be free like television, then maybe there's going to be some advertisements. And uh, I, I don't like this idea that uh, everybody should work hard to provide you content for nothing. Well, that's not quite what's going on here, is it? It's just that some guys are providing a sort of application that's quite popular, probably with a minority of people that help you control perhaps the more aggressive advertisers in your ecosystem or environment in an opt-in way, and Google is saying, no, you can't do that. Yeah, I can see they want to favor the advertisers because that's what the company's all about, putting ads in front of you. I suppose we should be thankful for small mercies. At least Google, unlike Apple, isn't saying, and you can't shop anywhere else. So you will be able to get your ad blockers if you want them. They just won't have the imprimatur of Google. Well, and that can be quite risky business, although we do see Google occasionally allowing malicious applications into the Play Store. More often, um, you know, we are seeing literally thousands of Android samples every single day in the labs, and almost all of them come from these off-market places. So people should be very cautious with which market they may choose to download additional things from and what the provenance of those apps are. Maybe that's a subject of a techno, uh, you know, the, the, the benefits and risks of rooting and, and tether and, and jailbreaking your devices. You know, since I mentioned jailbreaking, uh, you know, Apple's introduced some new security, apparently, or what appears to be in response to the Matt Honan incident last summer where uh, someone was able to get his, uh, um, you know, his eye account and wipe out all his devices and things. So they've introduced what they're calling two-step verification. Now, usually we hear things called two-factor authentication. Maybe you can clear up the difference between two-factor and two-step for us. 
what they're offering isn't quite two-factor authentication. You don't get a separate token. And it's perfectly feasible, and I think many people will use the service this way, that it will be the same device on which you log in with your regular password, receive the SMS with the one-time code in, and then enter that code, for example, if you've got an iPhone. So it's not quite two completely distinct factors, and certainly not separate hardware factors necessarily. So Apple are calling it two-step verification. It relies on you logging in with your Apple ID, that's username, the password, which is the same every time, the thing that could be key-logged, or you could use it on another website to get stolen there, and then an SMS code, which is effectively a four-digit one-time password, which does definitely raise the bar for the crooks, because it means that they would have to be on your device or able to intercept each and every one of those SMSs in order to log in. So I'm not a huge fan of SMS verification or authentication, particularly when compared to a standalone separate physical token. But in terms of preventing you getting honanized, um, that's not going to be possible if you turn on this two-step verification. So well done for Apple. The bad news is it's not available in all parts of the world. You have to be in, I think, US, UK, Ireland, Oz, or New Zealand. Everywhere else, uh, unfortunately, a bit of a waiting game. But it is a good start. You know, is the social engineering completely eliminated then? I mean, couldn't I still call up and say, oh my god, I've lost my iPhone and I need to get access to my account? If you turn on the two-step verification, then you will not be able to recover a lost password via Apple support. In other words, you actually opt out of Apple support being able to do that at all. Now, that might sound like an abrogation of responsibility by Apple, but when you turn on the two-step verification, they do give you a, I think it's a 14-character, they say, recovery key, which you can write down on a bit of paper and lock away at home. So you are taking on complete responsibility for your own security, but the great thing is you are immunizing yourself against even the best social engineer in the world. There isn't any trickery that that person can do against Apple. They'd have to trick you into revealing your recovery key. And Apple does warn you. So don't put the recovery key on your computer where you can get it easily or on your device. That's not the idea of it because it's the keys to the castle. And by the way, if you lose it, it's game over. You'll have to get a new account. See, I thought we had an agreement not to bring up Kevin Mitnick on the podcast, but I'll let that one slip this time. I nearly used his name, Chester, and now you've gone and blown it. I did use the word Mitnickist in my article, which I was very proud of, and then I kind of wished I hadn't. And I guess social engineering is ultimately uh, about being misled, or uh, if you're a little harsher about it, I guess being lied to. Uh, what about links that lie? Uh, you know, we've got this feature thing you wrote about. I think you called it a, a uh, hackette. I called it a hackette, yes. Somebody said, oh, that's not a hackette. Even a five-year-old would know about this. And I would have thought, well, if it's the kind of thing that a five-year-old would know about, and I haven't met any five-year-olds who are expert JavaScript programmers yet, it may happen. If it is the kind of thing that a five-year-old knows about, then isn't hackette just the right word for it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I didn't take uh, umbrage with the term. And I guess it's one of these things that my reaction to, again, maybe like the Google story is a little different than a lot of people. Um, while I'm not opposed to changing the behavior, I just look at it and go, really? You really think that you're going to know that any given URL is good or bad? Now, fair enough, when I get an email proclaiming to be from PayPal, and when I hover over the link and I see that it's actually from badguy.ru, 
I'm not going to click that link. Of course, I don't click links in emails anyway. You know, the reality is even if it said paypal.com, that doesn't mean it's taking me to a safe place. Uh, you know, major brands all over the world are compromised on a regular basis. And in fact, a lot of times um, the criminals, when they gain access, will put a hidden page somewhere in the structure where it's less likely to be noticed um, and just direct people to it simply because you trust the brand of the .com or the .org or whatever it might be. So I, I, I hear you, and I, and I did try to make that point in the story saying, look, the fact that a link looks good doesn't mean that it is. And, you know, as Sophos Labs researcher Fraser Howard has written about on numerous occasions, the vast majority of infected websites, if we can use that term, aren't owned and operated by the crooks. They're just gateways to where the crooks live that are provided by XYZ hacked org. M maybe for those who haven't seen the story, let me just explain the what I saw as the crashing irony in this hackette and why it piqued my interest. What this guy is showing is how easy it is to use the onClick event in JavaScript to rewrite the URL that you just clicked on. It was just that irony that really caught my eye. It seems a little like being able to get someone else to stand in the airport security queue for you, have their bags checked, and then quite openly and officially swap places with them after the checkpoint but before you board the plane. It just seems like maybe we approach this all the wrong way around well yeah there's so many of these le legacy things on the web uh there was a story this week that uh, wasn't completely security related so we didn't cover it but it reminds me of similar things of internet explorer 11 allegedly is going to send its user agent as firefox so it doesn't get served up the old javascript workaround code that ie required in version 6 and 7 um, but so many websites uh, are sending that broken code to modern Microsoft browsers that actually do JavaScript correctly and by the specification that it now is breaking modern Internet Explorer. So, I mean, these old, these old thing, uh, hacks of Microsoft are coming back to bite them. I find that quite entertaining. We're stuck with this backwards, sideways, and forwards compatibility, and trying to be all things to all people does get in the way of security very, very much. Which is why in that Apple story, the idea that they're saying, hey, if you, if you switch to our new verification authentication system, you will not be able to use old school recovery techniques where you phone up and ask really nicely. You know, that is a break with the past. And as I said, hats off to Apple for making quite such an abrupt change. Maybe we need a bit more of that in the way that we approach convenience in cloud programming and cloud apps in the future. Well, let's just hope that the PayPal team listens to the Chat Chat and takes a few clues from Apple on that front. Um, that concludes Chat Chat 105 for March the 27th, 2013. As always, for the latest news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available at podcasts.sophos.com on RSS or via iTunes. And until next time, stay secure.